All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour for making this show uh, economically viable. They are Nanostruck Technologies, Paramount Gold and Silver Corp, Columbus Gold, and Golden Arrow Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me again a couple of good friends of, of mine that I've learned to know uh, from Ron Paul's office and in the days when Ron Paul was a congressman, talking about Jeff Deist, who's been on this show many times, and Daniel McAdams, who's on this show almost every week these days. Uh, they're both back with us, their uh, bios are available, of course, at the Voice America Business Channel uh, on my uh, on my site at the Voice America Business Channel. Uh, and so, I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to read over those bios again since we've done it many times in the past. Jeff was uh, was Ron's chief of staff, and Daniel was his uh, foreign policy advisor. So, welcome both of you to turning hard times into good times. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Good good to have you both of you with us. Uh, Jeff, you know, I, I have to ask you, uh, I, I know what Daniel's doing since he left the congressman's office because we talk to him every, almost every week. He's uh, with, the, uh, uh, with Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. What have you been up to? Jay, I actually, after leaving Ron's office, I went back to a, uh, a big four accounting firm where I had worked previously to working for Ron. Okay. All right. So uh, any, any ideas? Are you, gonna, are you just going to be a lawyer the rest of your life? Well, gosh, that's a terrible thing to say. You, you can yeah. never, you can never not be a lawyer. Once you're a lawyer, you're a lawyer for life. It's well, it's sort of, it's sort of like the mark of the devil. I suppose it probably shows up on your forehead somewhere or something like that. But you know, Jay, it's interesting. Is as I was listening to the end of your segment there with Mr. Cook, you know, here we are in this environment where the Dow has flirted with sixteen thousand of late. Uh, I guess it's down a bit today, but if you recall, it wasn't that long ago. When, you know, when the Dow first reached 10,000, boy, everybody in America thought we were so rich. Yeah. And, you know, now, now it, it's up another 50%, at least nominally. And of course, we're not richer. Um, and it's fascinating to me how all these, these TSX venture, you know, small cap and mid cap mining stock companies struggle to attract capital. And some of them are, you know, uh, obviously selling well below $5 and, and potentially facing delisting. But yet somehow, you know, the Dow is at 16,000 money is flowing into, I guess it's flowing into Wall Street and Silicon Valley because you have a stock like Google that's over $1,000. Uh, you know, it's just fascinating to me that, that real stuff, i.e., uh, you know, mining stocks has such a difficult time attracting capital, even though history tells us 
that you know when the dust settles after every boom and bust that it's it's real stuff that matters and real stuff that keeps us all fed and housed and clothed but but uh, nonetheless it seems like the uh, the delusion uh, of casino capitalism continues it, um, and I'm I'm currently reading David Stockman's book The Great Deformation mm-hmm. sure and, uh, boy it is a really eye opening account of what happened during the 08 crash with Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs and and AIG, et cetera. And wow, it's, it's really frightening to think that the whole thing has just gotten ratcheted up and it's going to be even bigger this time. Yeah, it's exactly what our guests were saying a little while ago about the mining sector and the uh, the investors don't have the attention span to stick with and look at the, uh, the long term requirement of capital for developing gold mining projects, for example, or mining projects. But Jeff, you talked about $5. Well, with the stocks that I'm looking at in Vancouver, they're five cents, not five dollars. So that's uh, it's it's uh, it's it's really incredible. Uh, but I think in in general, the very fact that uh, that Wall Street cheers a bad economy so that we'll get more and more casino chips to be to be played with, to wrestle wealth away from the people that actually produce it, the miners, the manufacturers, the farmers, the inventors, off to the uh, off off to Wall Street and Washington, where both of you guys live. You guys have, have home prices that are going up, up, and up in value. I, w- I would presume because you live uh, near the um, uh, near the center, near the feeding trough, as it were. As uh, we've had Alistair McLeod on this show talk about the Cotillon effect uh, that that takes place when the money is created out of nothing. Those uh, economies that are closest to the to the pig's trough get get uh, do very very well, but the rest of the country very much like. Um, uh, like parasites are eating away at the at the muscle fiber and the bone uh, and and tissue of the of the producing part of the economy. So, I, I think that what we have to do is is uh, is try to um, you know people like Daniel have got to shut their mouths and we have to start firing up our our weapons and going over and taking over more countries and getting there and and stealing their resources. What do you say, Daniel? Well, you know, it's interesting, Jay, uh, the, the Washington Post yesterday, they've been running a series on uh, lobbying and federal contracts in D.C., and it's one of the reasons why Fairfax County in Virginia, just over from Washington, is, uh, if not the richest, the second richest county in the country. Mm. And it's interesting, if uh, yesterday's piece was all about how uh, the military-industrial complex spins off these companies uh, that get enormously, fabulously wealthy on contracts through insider knowledge. You know, they'll hire lobbyists. They'll spend a few million on lobbyists to get a billion-dollar contract. And here's an interesting little statistic. Uh, from the year 2000, spending on federal contracts has risen 90%. Spending on lobbying has increased 59% since 2000. So that's hmm. where the real growth is, you know. So you need to be a lobbyist, and a lot of these, a lot of these congressmen, unlike Ron Paul, when they leave office, they become. Well, I don't know if the congressmen do, but people that are well connected in Washington, they make, uh, they become very wealthy people being lobbyists, don't they? Well, congressmen do, and also uh, members of the military. You get a lot of two stars, you get a lot of uh, colonels. Uh, they cash in with a full pension, and then they make three, four, five times their salary in addition, uh, going out and uh, trying to talk everyone else into more wars. So it's very yeah. profitable for these two sectors. Yeah, it's very, very profitable for those two sectors. And how do we pay for the wars? The one thing I, I just, what's hard for me to understand, I guess, I guess nobody really knows, but how long can we keep the printing presses going uh, and how long can we finance 
um, our war efforts uh, with printing press money, Jeff? Jay, that's a good question. I don't know the answer, uh, but I do know that, you know, Ben Bernanke, Bernanke, we have a very clear exposition of, of his view of the Great Depression, right? I mean, we've got his thesis. We've got it in, in black and white. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't necessarily have as clear a, a perspective of, of whether Janet Yellen uh, understands or how she understands political economy and war. Um, you, you know, we always used to kid our, around in the office, in Ron Paul's office, that, you know, since the country was broke, but yet W was blundering us into Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, what if, what if the president had to announce uh, that every, every household in America was going to be assessed an extra couple hundred dollars every month because, uh, obviously, since promoting democracy in the Middle East was worth it, um, you know, we would all have to kick in our fair share, and, and the country needed the money to prosecute the war effort. But, of course, they didn't do that. Uh, they they paid for the war in the most insidious way imaginable, which is which is through the Fed, in effect. Uh, so they borrowed to do it. Uh, you know, it's it's a discouraging time, but it does seem that I think I, I would like to give Ron Paul a, a good bit of the credit for this. I think the country is war weary, and I think in part that's tied to our fiscal woes that people mm-hmm. understand the connection, and and I think that might have had something to do with with uh, what happened in both the House and the Senate on sort of rejecting the, uh, the uh, Syria war vote. Mm-hmm. Daniel, so, any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's, it's interesting that, that Jeff points that out. It's a very good point. And but, but the other downside to a lot of this war weariness is we see a lot of the war machine coming home to the U.S. Over at the Ron Paul Institute, we read a fantastic article by John Whitehead of the Rutherford Institute who, who went into great deal explaining how a lot of these surplus military vehicles and uh, grenade launchers and all of these amazing drones and technology is going to your local police force. Uh, you know, there's uh, um, Boise or Nampa, Idaho, have been gifted with a 20-ton mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicle to withstand IED blasts. And I've I've been to Nampa, Idaho. It's not a place where you really worry about a lot of IEDs. <laughs> My goodness! But you know, then you have you have these small town police forces armed with these incredible military gadgets, and I think their behavior starts to change in accordance with the weapons that they have. And I think that's why you're seeing these horrible stories of uh, police departments throughout the country really using some excessive force on people. So it has come to home to roost, I think. Why Idaho? I mean, you've got some right-wingers up there, some freedom lovers, some libertarians, uh, some Christians. Who do they want to go after up there, I wonder? Well, it's actually just an example. There are dozens and dozens of towns. There's even Ohio State University's Department of Public Safety has acquired one of these mine-resistant vehicles. You know, so it's just everywhere. So they're uh, fearful that we're going to, that the populace is going to revolt and blow them up, and they've got to have these... Mine-resistant vehicles. Well, it's also their freebies from the military. I see. And, I see. We got to keep spending. Yeah, it keeps the military-industrial <laughs> complex running. They got to keep producing these things. Got to find new markets for it. As we're pulling out of Afghanistan, Iraq. So this is this is that you're creating a market for it, and you're creating it at home. And I think it's very dangerous. Well, you know, uh, the three of us are are very much um, Austrian 
believers in Austrian economics. Jeff, you know, we look at this and we see the government's role in the economy and we the word that comes to my mind is malinvestment. You have huge amounts of resources that are being spent on these killing machines and these uh, uh, these spying machines that we have now. Uh, and And it just seems to me that sooner or later, the parasites will eat everything away from the productive sector. And what happens then? Yes, it's astonishing. I mean, I, I, the fear, of course, is that when you have all these weapons and you have all these toys, is that there's there's a natural tendency to want to use them, you know, as opposed to just letting them rust somewhere. Um, so that that's a huge concern. But yes, there's a tremendous amount of money taken out of the productive private economy and put into uh, malinvested into government boondoggles and, and the militarization of police and and the over over-militarization of our society at large is, is one effect of that. In other words, too much money has gone into something um, that's not market-based. But, yeah. uh, you know, Daniel might know this, but heck, even Ron Paul's uh, wonderful bucolic hometown of Lake Jackson, Texas, uh, which is now a population of about 30,000, but it was much smaller than that when he arrived there in the 60s, um, they have one of these armored-type military vehicles. Uh, it, it's absolutely astonishing what's happening. And Rodney Balco from Cato has a new book out on the militarization of domestic police in America that I, that I saw recently. I haven't read it, but it looks really, really interesting. And I know, Daniel, that, that Will Gray, uh writes quite extensively uh, about the militarization of police. And I do think that is linked in an odd way, perhaps, but it is linked to sort of the, the military-industrial complex at large. In other words, there's something going on in the psyche of America. And maybe it's because we know things are so rotten at home that, that it's making us somehow more, more bellicose, more belligerent, more violent. And, uh, you know, it's not always easy to connect the dots, but I think we all feel it in a sense. Yeah. You know, so this is supposed to be capitalism, though, this whole military-industrial complex. I mean, when people will see what's going wrong, they say, well, we have to – they'll blame it on capitalism, even though this is if, – if at best it's a perverted form of capitalism. I think it's more fascism than anything else. But then, uh, you know, there is always that excuse that we've got to go back and tax the people that are making money more, and it's usually the average people that are paying for it. But uh, it's 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 very um, it's just very. Uh, the question in my mind is how long can this go on? And that's I guess the question nobody can really answer. But you know, uh, we talk about the financial side, uh, you know, the, the markets and all that on this show a lot. But I'm looking at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, and there's a film there that I haven't had time to watch there. But there's a video, Daniel, uh, Ron Paul's plea for peace. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, a little about that film. Sure, it's, uh, we, we just put it up yesterday. This is something that was produced by his Ron Paul channel. And, uh, you know, most of the, uh, the things they do are for uh, members of the channel, subscribers to the channel. But this is something that he felt strong, so strongly that he wanted to release it uh, to the general public. So it's available for everyone to watch. It's, it's just about three minutes or four minutes long. Uh, and as he mentioned to me the other day, you know, he, he sort of wrote it like he used to write his old uh, five-minute floor speeches. And a uh, fantastic team from the Ron Paul Channel put together some very moving photographs and uh, video clips together. And it really is all about how 
the war machine always benefits the special interests. It always benefits big government, and it always destroys lives of those who are sent to fight and also those on the receiving end of these uh, democracy bombs that we seem to send everywhere. Uh, so it really is a, 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 a very moving piece of film to watch. We've had to, in order to get people to to go into battle, you know, there always has to be some sort of a, of a higher cause, right? In order, to, I mean, I guess maybe one of the things that's happening now, though, is that the economy is so horrible. Uh, in fact, Teresa and I have known of, of some people uh, young people that have gone back to Iraq a second and third time. They vowed they wouldn't go back, but they couldn't get jobs back here. So they go back. Uh, is, but my, my question is this. What is, what is keeping Americans going to fight these wars if it's not a higher cause? Or do people still believe that it's all about something about liberty when, in fact, it's the, exactly the opposite? What, what people, the oh, I'm sorry, Jeff, go ahead. Jeff, you, were you going to apply on that comment? No, go ahead, Daniel. I was just going to say, you know, that we can't overlook the role that the media plays in this. And, you know, the three of us get a lot of our, I'm sure probably most of our information uh, from, from different kinds of media sources, from the Internet, and we, we seek out different viewpoints. But mm-hmm. don't forget, most of America still does receive its news uh, through the mainstream and corporate sources. And if you, I mean, just remember in the run-up to the Syria war, there were all sorts of... Uh, of, of amazing, fantastic tales of how horrible things were in Syria and how we had to go slay another Hitler. The same thing was true with Gaddafi. So, uh, you know, the military-industrial complex, I think, is tied in with the media. In many cases, uh, media outlets are owned by those that are producing some of these war weapons. So you do have conflicts of interest, and you do have the propagandization of, of the U.S. And, you know, there are a lot of people that went in after 9-11 and joined the military, and they... They really believed that they were fighting to protect America. And, you know, Congressman Paul on, on his Ron Paul channel has been inter- interviewing them all month, you know, for Veterans mm-hmm. Month, he calls it. And there are so many of these disillusioned young people who did not, uh, who went off to do something that they certainly did not end up doing. Uh, so you have, you have a lot of that, I think. I had, uh, you talk about the media, Daniel. I had, uh, I was just watching. Uh, television last evening, I came across this channel. Uh, a guy named a, a journalist named Chris Hedges, uh, yeah. uh-huh. who, who was who who was uh, fired by the New York Times. I think he had talked uh, against the war, uh, the Iraq War, and he had given a speech at a commencement address in in uh, some college in Illinois, and uh, it really created a lot of stir. In fact, he was he was actually. Uh, uh, removed from the stage before he finished giving his speech, uh, and um, uh, but this was a gentleman that had had spent time, had gone to wars to cover the wars at great risk to his own life uh, to let the American people know what was really going on. But he's not allowed. He's not allowed. To, he's not permitted by the mainstream press uh, clearly to to talk about that. And was fired by the by the New York Times. Uh, you would think the New York Times, uh, you know, used to be more open. I mean, they were the ones that published the uh, Daniel Ellsberg's uh, Pentagon Papers, for example, and uh, but no more. I mean, the New York Times, it, it seems like the major media is completely owned and operated by uh, by the same guys. Jeff, you were going to say something a minute ago, I think, on the other issue. Well, when you ask, you know, why... Uh, our young people and our troops continue to fight these wars. I guess part of it is that we we have this vast uh, 
upstanding professional military force. Uh-huh. I don't think it was ever intended by our fathers, founding fathers, and if, you know, basically they're 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 not conscripts; they're professional soldiers, and that's sort of what they do, and that's that's their paid job, and it, and it has its nasty aspects, but they go do it because that's how they make a living. And and uh-huh. you know, I mean, Murray Rothbard wrote about this extensively. Uh, you know, when he, when he writes about war economy, is in his view, there's only sort of two wars. Uh, in, in the history, uh, at least of our country, that that are just, in, this, in you know, and he writes about the Revolutionary period, and then of course the Civil War, um, as as sort of a war of aggression against the South. Um, but you know, do I? I don't think that many Americans really feel in their gut that hey, we we need to go save the Middle East and and make Syria or Iraq uh, democratic. I, I don't think that that motivates us. I. I I think you know. If anything, there, there's there might be some heartfelt desire to go fight terrorism. Although we've seen how how absurd that's been, and how untrue it's been, and how we actually, of course, create more terrorism by invading countries and and, and making the Islamic world mad at us. But uh, you know why why we fight? Um, you know that there's a whole movie about that, and and I think the reasons now have become. Very, very mixed at best. We, uh, uh, I want to switch gears a little bit to Obamacare, perhaps, Jeff. And um, you know, the, there's a lot of a lot of uh, unhappiness, not only from the Republican Party, but the Democratic Party, and even some a member of Congress or two is, is starting to uh, starting to object to some of the provisions of it. Daniel, you have a family to raise. Jeff, you have a family to raise. You have medical, uh, you have to worry about, about uh, insurance for your kids and for your family, for your wife and yourself. Uh, what are your thoughts, Daniel? First, I'll go to you and then, Jeff, what, what do you think, Daniel, how are you feeling about Obamacare? Aren't you really happy now that you have all your medical needs taken care of, right? <laughs> well, as Congressman Paul always pointed out when, when we were debating this, you know, it's really the worst of all worlds, you know, and it's not... People like to say that it's socialism, but, I mean, as Jeff can point out even better than I, uh, it's, it's actually a form of fascism. You know, it's corporatism where the federal government forces you to purchase a product. It's, it's certainly something that has no place in a free society. Jeff, what are your, what are your thoughts? Well, of course, it has nothing to do with medical care. Insurance and medical care are two very different things. But, uh, it, you know, it's, it's always humorous to me that we talk about medical care as though it's some divine right and somehow it ex- ought to exist on a different plane and outside of the market but you know no you know look there's lots of things that are critical to human beings apart from medical care like food for one and you know the soviets tried to to centrally plan and ration uh you know how food would be grown and produced and what cities it would be shipped to and and they tried a, a grand experiment, and, and it resulted in, in starvation and failure. So, you know, nobody is suggesting right now, to my knowledge, that we, uh, you know, nationalize Chick-fil-A uh, so that we can all somehow get chicken sandwiches sent to us. But somehow Americans have got it in their head that, that medical care is different and that yeah. it's, not, it's not scarce and it ought to just be provided uh, outside of the market. And it's absurd. And, and of course, we're going to reap the bitter fruits of that in that we're going to uh, have a tremendous dislocation, tremendous misallocation of resources mm-hmm. because, you know, like, like all socialist endeavors, it's impossible. You, you don't have an honest pricing mechanism when you, A, mandate that people buy insurance and that, B, 
you within that mandate you require insurers to carry or to cover certain things. All the actuarial science behind true insurance goes out the window, and uh, what you've got is an absolute mess. And and they do not have a fix for this uh, by December one. I guarantee you, and I don't think they have a fix for it in, in, in the next year. What's it going to do? Uh, <clears throat> I, I I could see Obamacare as well as some of the foreign. Uh, some of the foreign policies coming into play in the national elections uh, next year and and even into the presidential election after that. I could see uh, clearly there's going to be, as you point out, Jeff, misallocation of resources because, you know, planned economies don't work. They just can't work like uh, spontaneous ongoing uh, market directives that occur when markets are free. So we're going to have a huge amount of problems. I have no doubt about that. With Obamacare, uh, the Republicans going to make uh, make a big deal of this in the next uh, couple of years, Jeff? Sure. They, I mean, they've announced quite candidly that they're in, they're going to run on Obamacare as their as their central <laughs> issue in the twenty four midterm elections. But I'm not convinced that they're going to do it well. I mean, they they the Republicans will tend to botch things because. They don't offer a a clear freedom vision, uh, you know, an alternative to Obamacare, which would be, of course, market-based, which would involve cash for basic services, and insurance with high deductibles only for catastrophic care. I mean, that's what the market would provide if if the government got out of the way. Uh, And that's what the market provided 30, 40 years ago, of course, when medical care was much better. But, no, look, the Republicans will come up with some, uh, some sort of muddled idea um, they'll keep very quiet about the role of, of Mitt Romney and Heritage Foundation in, in a in a earlier scheme that was much like Obamacare, and uh, you know they they're they're afraid uh, for all their talk about being the party of capitalism and markets. They 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 really aren't, and uh, I, I don't think that they will find this issue uh, such a boon in 2014 as they seem to think it will be. Yeah, I would I would tend to think you were right about that because basically as I see Republicans through the many years that I've been observing politics in this country is that Republicans seem to end up going along with the Democrats they just sort of drag their feet on, into into socialism and and anti-free markets and it doesn't seem to be too many people out there in the Republican party Ron Paul was a was an exception that really understand that it's not uh, something you can compromise on uh, all the time and uh, that would be one issue, but looking at the foreign policy issues, Daniel, and looking at Syria, I'm wondering now, uh, Syria and Iran and, and a lot of the, you know, the military and industrial complex guys, the neocons, are looking at this president as being a limp-wristed president that isn't tough enough. Is that likely to come into play? The neocons, I'm sure, are going to try to make some hay against this president going forward, right? Sure, yeah. You know, we ran a, a short piece by Lou Rockwell earlier this week. Uh, where he, he basically was saying, hey, how come it's all of a sudden okay to criticize the president? You know, if you remember, yeah, very I think good. Oprah famously said people who are criticizing Obama, it's only because they're racist. Uh, but now all of a sudden the media has just brutally attacked him over this Obamacare. And I agree, it's an absolute fiasco. But it's, it's uh, as Lou points out, it's strange that none of these media outlets are opposed to socialized medicine. So can't, that can't be the, the reason. And what Lou suggests or suspects is that uh, the actual progress that Obama is making with Iran, getting very close to an agreement 
with Iran on some of these outstanding issues, and also the fact that he didn't bomb Syria has so inflamed the elites uh, that they're using the Obamacare as an excuse to, to really hit him with a double whammy. And that's kind of interesting. We may, we may see more of that. There certainly has been a backlash against any attempt for, uh, at using diplomacy with Iran. Well, you know, there's one former president who recently said uh, at a talk that he gave to a group of, um, uh, of, of uh, German uh, trade group in Atlanta, uh, former, Jim, Jim, uh, former President Jimmy Carter, uh, who I think was also viewed in many ways as, as a limp-wristed president um, and certainly not somebody that I was in favor of necessarily, but uh, he recently said America does not currently have a uh, does not currently have a working democracy. So what I'm hearing you say, Daniel, is that uh, there's probably powers behind the throne that are that are working to uh, to get this guy or to try to get the military uh, fervor and the need to to go and and keep this military industrial complex alive and uh, keep the money flowing to those to all those people with fancy expensive homes in in Virginia and outside of Washington, right? Keep the military industrial complex. So it seems. Uh, Seems to be the case. Um, well, I, I think we're just just about out of time here, so I want to thank both of you for coming on and talking to me. I would just say it's the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity that you should go to. Another another place that people should pay attention to uh, is uh, uh, is Lou Rockwell's uh, site that uh, I think Danny just mentioned. What is that? Uh, uh, we can follow Lou Rockwell and the Austrian group, what, the Mises Institute. The yeah, Mises. Mises.org and LouRockwell.com. Both, both very good places to go. And, uh, and of course, Daniel, you write uh, prolifically. You're very much uh, uh, involved with the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. There's a great stuff there. People should go there. Uh, Jeff, I want to thank you very much for being with me again as well. I hope to talk to you sometime in the near future. And you can let me know what's going on in the legal profession. That's uh, well, we can maybe find some exciting things to talk about in the tax, in the tax arena or something, or, or not exciting, but probably frightening. Anyway, thank you both for being with us today. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. All right, Jack. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back after the commercial break with some ideas, uh, some companies, actually, that I'd like to talk to you about, companies that I'm featuring in my newsletter that I'm very, very uh, excited about, uh, in spite of the fact that the share prices are uh, really down, very low these days, but I think that's one of the reasons that I find them uh, exciting stories to talk about. So don't go away. I'll be right back after the break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Paramount Gold and Silver is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce gold and silver deposits. Paramount's primary asset, the Sleeper Gold Project in northern Nevada, is located in one of the world's most prolific mining districts. Paramount's gold equivalent resources stand at over 7 million ounces. Paramount trades on the NYSE under the symbol PZG. For more information, go to www.paramountgold.com. Paramount Gold is located for success in gold and silver exploration. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit about uh, an upcoming event in San Francisco. I'm talking about the Metals and Minerals Investment Conference that's going to be there. Uh, I am going to be speaking. I have a workshop uh, that I'll be talking at on Monday at uh, 545, uh, and I'm going to talk about the title of my uh, talk is going to be Deflationary Forces in a Monetary Printing world, and I'll, I'll, I'm going to talk to you about that a little bit now, but that's the title of my talk then. I'm also going to be on three panels. I'm going to be on a panel discussion, uh, on precious metals, and, uh, that'll be chaired, uh, that'll be led by Peter Spina, uh, Peter Hug, and a, another individual, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment will be there as well. And then I'm going to be, uh, on another, uh, panel. I'm going to be actually on the, uh, keynote panel, Bulls and Bears. Uh, with a number of very interesting, James Dines will be on that, I think Al Corlin, um, I'm not uh, completely sure who else is, there's a couple of other very interesting people on there as well, uh, and I'm also going to be on another panel called uh, Exploration Trends, and there John Kaiser, who was with us earlier today on this show, uh, will be on that panel as well as Mickey Falp, who's been on this show as well. Mickey is a geologist and uh, writes a newsletter in the Mining Share uh, sector as well as does John Kaiser. So those are some events, and this is taking place. Uh, this will be uh, taking place in San Francisco, and we're looking at the dates are the 25th and 26th of this month. So it's uh, at the Marriott Marquis Hotel in uh, downtown San Francisco. So those of you who listen to this show, I I hope that uh, you'll stop by and say hello and, and catch up with me at one of my workshops or panels and um, let me know if you're uh, any anything you have to say about the show or about uh, about the, the San Francisco show as well as its radio show or uh, and subscribers of mine that happen to be at the, in San Francisco. I hope you'll stop by and say hello and meet up with me as well. Well, the the whole notion that we could actually be in a deflationary world at a time when we are printing huge amounts of money, money uh, that, is, that is just being created at uh, astronomical rates of speed. And um, we're looking at, uh, for example, I was talking to you earlier today in the show uh, about some of the statistics that Martin Weiss put out. We're looking at, um, you know, $3.6 trillion right now of monetary expansion and uh, if we had been creating money at the pace we did uh, since 1961 up until Lehman Brothers, it would have taken us 150 years to get to this level of, of, of uh, monetary base. It's sitting in the Federal Reserve. Well, why, if all of this money has been created and it's sitting in the banks, why are we not seeing an explosion and a hyperinflation? Well, there are people uh, that we've had on this show like John Williams who's absolutely convinced uh, – that we are going to have a hyperinflation. And John's thesis is based largely on his belief that the dollar will sooner or later collapse, that it, with so much money being created, it will just simply 
it, it will just simply go away. John may be right. Ultimately, I think he probably will be. But if all the other currencies are being created at an equally rapid pace, then you know maybe maybe that this thing could hold together for a lot longer than we than we believe it could. Uh, one of the factors I think that most people don't think about that uh, that comes into play with this whole issue of the fear of uh, hyperinflation is that in a fiat money system such as we are uh, such as we have now. Money, it's debt that is the raw material from which money is created. As you have a double entry bookkeeping system, and so you always have debt. So when we talk about this explosive growth in, uh, in money creation, $3.7 trillion sitting in the, in the, on the, in the Federal Reserve, and in the banking system, I should say. Well, there's also the other side of that is $3.7 trillion of debt that's been created. Uh, and as look as I look at the total uh, chart that I show in my talks, total debt to GDP, debt is growing exponentially. Those kind of numbers I just told you about. Income, on the other hand, is not growing nearly as fast. We were just talking to Daniel and uh, and Jeff about the problem of malinvestment, which is an Austrian concept that the Keynesians don't don't understand or believe at all. And that is that as you create huge amounts of money and pump it into the system, it goes into bad places. It's a misallocation of resources. Well, certainly, I believe very firmly that the military-industrial complex is a huge misallocation of resources that President Eisenhower warned us about. But I think uh, misallocation of resources in the private sector, too. Think back to the great dot-com bubble. We talk about malinvestment. Money is pumped into little companies that go bust, and shares that are worth twenty, thirty, forty dollars turn out to be worth twenty, thirty, forty cents, or they go out of business entirely. That was not uncommon in the uh, with the dot com bubble. Lord knows the biggest bubble of all so far has been the housing uh, bubble. And look at all the malinvestment of uh, people that bought houses they can't pay. Well, what do they do? They socialize the losses. Um, and uh, get all of us to pay and our children and our grandchildren to pay in the future with this huge amount of indebtedness, uh, the U.S. government uh, indebtedness. And, and lest you buy the mainstream media's idea that, or, or propaganda that, in fact, things are paid off, there was a, a good uh, – some whistleblower recently came out and talked about how, in fact, um, uh, I think it was a $600 billion tarp that was supposedly paid off well, that was just pure nonsense. Apparently, there was another government um, fund that was uh, created that took the money from that fund and paid off the fund uh, that was the TARP fund. So it was just a, a, a total hoax, uh, and uh, that has never really been paid off. So the point is that our system is based on uh, double-entry bookkeeping. It's not like uh, it's not like Zimbabwe. It's at this point in time, at least, it's not like the Weimar Republic either, where money was literally printed and then showered out over the over the over the uh, over the landscape of the country. But what we do have is an enormous amount of indebtedness uh, that um, uh, th- that has to be repaid, and there is no income to repay it. So what I see is a growing insolvency, and when Debt is growing much more rapidly than income, then what you have, in my view, is a growing deflationary problem. Now, could that change? 
Yeah, I think it could. I mean, I, I guess what they could do is pump money out to the masses. I mean, I had Ron Paul on this show some time ago, uh, and Ron is an inflationist. He believes ultimately hyperinflation is a problem. Peter Schiff's been on this show. He believes that. James Turk, a lot of people we've had on this show who are absolutely convinced that we are going to hyperinflate one day. And they could be right. I, I, I just, I think though that what has to happen is that money has to be sent out to the masses. We need to see, uh, the masses of people get lots of, lots of money. I mean, if we were really interested in Keynesian economics, uh, they could, they could get money in the hands of the little people. And they have a propensity to spend. I mean, that's one thing, I think, one Keynesian concept that I believe was correct. If you put the money in the hands of masses, of the masses, people that can hardly make ends meet, then they'd start buying little extras and they'd start buying creature comforts uh, and, and things would get better. Uh, in, in a sense for the economy. I don't say that's the way we should go. I don't believe that we, government should be involved. I think we should have limited government so that people could be free to be who they are and have the resources to uh, explore uh, who and what they are and to do what they can and use their talents to serve others through the marketplace, through the directives of the market. But that's not what we have, of course. What we have is a, a bastardized version of capitalism that I think is uh, is, is very evil and self-destructive. But again, um, my belief is that the the greatest risk that we're facing now is deflation. And on that issue, I guess I'm in agreement with the Federal Reserve. I'm in agreement uh, that um, uh, that those are the uh, the undertow and the overwhelming force in the economy is deflation because debt has gotten so uh, so massive. Now, if they destroy the dollar, if the dollar uh, tanks. Then I think John Williams is is absolutely right, and if they put uh, trillions and trillions and hundreds of trillions of dollars in the hands of the masses, then yeah, we can get hyperinflation. I think there's no question that we would get it. But you know, the very basic premise upon which our current policy is built is Keynesian economics. The notion that, as President uh, Roosevelt said, all we have to we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And John Maynard Keynes talked about how we need to create animal spirits. Animal spirits. Well, animal spirits, uh, that's fine and dandy, but how do you give people animal spirits if they don't have enough income to pay the rent or put food on their table? Well, they give them food stamps. That's part of the answer. Uh, but, okay, so that's subsistence. But how do you get people to feel optimistic? How do you get them to... F- the point is that the reality is not one of optimism. There's no basis upon which to be optimistic. And the more the government gets involved, the less reason there is to be optimistic about the future. Uh, at most, what the government can do uh, is provide the very basic subsistence needs. And it can't really do that. Uh, as Ian McAvity has pointed out, we're at the point now where there's as many people voting for a living as working for a living. And that is going to swing very much uh, against the working part of that equation uh, because uh, with the demographics in America uh, the way they are the baby boomers are getting older and now they're in retirement age so we're going to see more people voting for a living than working for a living so where is the wealth going to come from where is the supply side of the economy going to come from whether you're talking about health care or you're talking about uh, whatever agriculture industry whatever where is it going to come from uh, when um, uh, you know, when you have more people voting for a living than working for a living. So what we have, though, is this notion that we can just happy talk our way to prosperity. All we have to do is uh, 
is feel uh, is feel pro- uh, is feel prosperous, and then we will be prosperous. Well, this is a big lie, of course. It's part of what our government is telling us. Um, the, the notion that inflation is less than two percent is a lie. The notion that the job markets is improving is a white lie, uh, because as you look at the total number of people in the workforce, it's the lowest it's been since the 1970s. So uh, that is, you know, some of the contribution of John Williams to this show and elsewhere. The, the notion that we can have, uh, that we can just happy talk our way and print our way to prosperity is the, is the big lie. And this is why I think ultimately I remain extremely bullish on, on gold. Uh, and I'm not talking about necessarily the nominal price of gold. John Kaiser talked a couple of times today about the, uh, the real price of gold. You know, as an investor in the mining companies, that's what I'm interested in, the real price of gold. Uh, so w- what we're looking at is a, a, a money supply that is being increased uh, very dramatically. Uh, it hasn't yet been uh, uh, entered into the economy in a very real way through the multiplier effect. What we Banks need to start making loans. If the banks make loans, that would be the normal way. But I'm saying that the banks aren't making loans not because they don't want to, but because when they look around, there's no place really to lend the money. I mean, there's, you can lend money to deadbeats. But banks are not yet so totally government-owned that they're uh, that they're willing and ready to do that. Indeed, I would say that um, that the bankers, if anything, own the government and the military-industrial complex, as Daniel was talking about, own uh, basically owns the government. So it's the government is working for the large corporate interest, which is another reason that I that I that I think we're heading more towards a deflation than an inflation. If the populist had the upper hand. If the Democrats were really being Democrats, if they really cared about the people, uh, and they were willing instead of, of uh, catering to the, uh, to the to the people that are buying their election campaigns, and they worried about the common average folks, then we might actually get uh, the kind of economics that could cause hyperinflation. But from what I'm seeing so far, I, I just don't see it. I think the the biggest risk that we face at this point in time uh, is uh, is deflation. I put together something that I talk about in my newsletter called my Inflation Deflation Watch. And the amazing thing about this is that in spite of this huge amount of money that's been created, uh, we're looking at uh, basically a, a resistance to rising prices. The only thing in my index is uh, equity prices, which are on the rise, but the commodity prices are in decline. And so on balance, we're seeing, uh, basically, we're not seeing any kind of, uh, any kind of a reflection of the enormous amount of money that's been created. Uh, and so that's uh, what I'm going to be talking about. I have a number of slides in my presentation in San Francisco uh, that I will uh, provide some statistics to back up. My view that uh, deflation is a bigger risk at this point in time than hyperinflation. I think they're, they're both worries. The main thing that you have to keep in mind is that uh, our economy is sick, notwithstanding a new highs in the stock market, just under, well, we're just under um, 16,000 on the stock market. I'm looking at 15,967 now. Uh, uh, but if you look at the real economy and look at John Williams' numbers, you realize that average people, are having a very, very difficult time, and the middle class is being destroyed. Uh, and so um, that's uh, – I don't see the, uh, the inflation. So we do have to go to break, and when we come back, I'll have a word or two about how I think uh, investors might best protect themselves against uh, the kind of deflation that could be, 
the, the inflate, deflationary undertow that I think is really threatening us. So don't go away. I'll be right back with some closing thoughts on today's show. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm here uh, with some closing thoughts on today's show and um, also uh, talk to you a little bit about next week's guest. I, I thought our uh, roundtable discussion with Eric Coffin, uh, Brent Cook, and John Kaiser was very interesting. Uh, I am going to uh, have that uh, transcribed and, and published in my newsletter because I think there's lots of great ideas there. Uh, and I really enjoyed uh, – these are friends of mine who I many times am on panel discussions with them. In fact, as I just noted, I'll be on a panel discussion with one of them, John uh, Kaiser, uh, in San Francisco next week, next Monday. Uh, and um, uh, also, Mickey Falp will be on that uh, on that panel discussion as well. Um, also, uh, Jeff Deist and Daniel McAdams, uh, former staff members of Ron Paul, always bring with us uh, w- with them to this show views of a free market and a free market society and liberty. Simply uh, something that is being lost on the population. They think that we can have freedom and liberty without any price, and so um, well. Uh, I'm afraid we're losing it. We we want to make the best of what we have, though, and we want to be thankful for what we have. Thanksgiving's coming up. It's a time to be thankful. We still live in a country of plenty. We still are very fortunate. I can't complain. I have a good life right now. It's the direction of things that concerns me more than anything, though. And so how do we best protect ourselves? I was just talking about a deflationary environment, a deflationary undertow. Now, now, let me just make sure that people understand. I don't mean that we have deflation now. As a matter of fact, I think we have inflation. That is, inflation meaning the cost of living is going up. The real definition, the Austrian definition of inflation is an increase in the money supply. And we have the base money supply that's sitting in the banks is higher than ever. I mean, it's just going nuts. Uh, and deflation is a contraction of that. Well, that's not happening, clearly. But what I see is a huge amount of indebt- indebtedness that cannot be repaid, and that has the potential to implode the economy into a deflationary depression. We saw the start of it after Lehman Brothers. They got a handle on it. 
and they managed to keep the knife from bouncing off the table onto the floor. Uh, but we still have the problems now are bigger than ever. The debt-to-income ratio is much larger than it was before Lehman Brothers. So I hold to my view that deflation is the biggest threat. Now, is that bad? Well, no. If you can buy things at lesser at a lesser price, that's good. So if you if you can remain solvent, if you can remain liquid, how do you remain liquid? Well, if the dollar gains value, which is what would happen in a deflation, having cash is a good thing. And Robert Prechter is the preacher of that. He believes very firmly in that. And I'm not so sure I disagree. I'm not. I'm not as committed to it as Robert Prechter is, but certainly uh, that is a possibility. The other thing I would say is you want to have liquidity, you want to have gold, because gold is going to hold its value no matter what we go through, whether it's a hyperinflation or a deflation. Gold is really where you want to be. Uh, you want to own some of it. You want to have some gold and gold uh, coins, uh, I would say, starting with that. Um, and then... Um, with respect to gold stocks, a deflationary environment is absolutely the best one. I'm not talking about a disinflationary environment. I'm talking about a, an, inflation, uh, an environment similar to what we went through after Lehman Brothers. As a matter of fact, the real price of gold rose dramatically. The gold shares did extremely well, and the real price of gold and the mining profits went up because the real price of gold went up. Uh, very dramatically after Lehman Brothers. I think that is what's most likely to happen. As a matter of fact, I'm much more optimistic about gold mining shares in a deflationary environment than in a hyperinflationary environment. And we touched on that issue with some of our guests today because in a hyperinflationary environment, it's your mining profits that will be very difficult to come by. In a deflationary environment where wages and uh, cost of materials go down, then your profits can go up very dramatically and you can do extremely well. That was the 1930s, it was true, and it turned out to be true uh, for a brief period of time after the Lehman Brothers uh, decline as well. Now, in terms of what kind of gold stocks to buy, in my newsletter I talk about uh, different kinds of companies. I am focusing uh, on prospect generators. Uh, that is one category that I like a lot because uh, they don't burn through cash, so they those that survive, I think there's going to be some big winners there. Eurasian Minerals is is a favorite there. Uh, Marisol Resources is another one I like. Riverside Resources, those are just three names that I'll mention. There's several others as well. Uh, and then I like the producers, the smaller producers. And uh, here I have to point out one that I'm particularly uh, proud of, uh, and uh, uh, and that... Um, uh, one that is actually, it's called Dynacore Gold Mines, uh, which has been a sponsor of this show, but it's a company I picked up at a much lower price, and they are making very, very nice profits, just earned $0.08. Cents. Uh, stock is selling about a dollar for it. Earned $0.08 cents the last quarter, but their earnings are growing very dramatically. I'm told I'm out of time. I can't believe it. Next week, we've got James Turk and Chris Powell, uh, an interview. Chris will really make the case for a manipulated gold price. Professor Murray Sabrin will be with me as well. Uh, and uh, I do want to thank Tacey Trump, Matt Widener uh, for making the show logistically possible, and thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.